Well, good morning. My name is Dan Boss, and uh, it was a pleasure to be with you this morning. I'm one of the one of the leaders and elders here at King's Cross, and uh, have the, have the pleasure of opening God's Word with you this morning as we continue our journey through the Book of Galatians. Um, I just spent a couple days in Yosemite uh, with my family and, and back yesterday, so I'm a little like, whew, where are we? But um, it was awesome up there. I highly recommend Yosemite in the fall. Like leaves are falling. It's just beautiful. Um, so yeah, like I said, we're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Galatians. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 3. But I want to just kind of back up and recap where we've been. In the, in the past few weeks, in the earlier chapters of 1 and 2 in the book of Galatians. So here are a couple of points that I want to remind you about. Paul points out that there are false teachers who are promoting a different gospel, which he says it's not actually even the gospel. It's no good news. Paul reiterates that the gospel he preached and that they received from him was not from man, but through revelation of Jesus Christ himself. And that Paul had received confirmation that this gospel was to be preached to the Gentiles. Paul confronts Peter openly about his hypocrisy um, while he is in Antioch. And Paul opposes the Judaizers who preach that you must supplement what Christ did on the cross with your own good works. Um, Last week, Obed preached on the end of chapter 2, where it talks about how we are justified solely by faith, not by anything that we can do. We're justified by Christ alone, not by the works of the law. So today, we come to chapter 3, and um, as is our custom, I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we read God's Word. So we're going to be in chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 9. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is God's word for us today. Would you pray with me as we jump in? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the depth of insight and the mystery that we can study it for centuries and still be amazed at the revelation and the application for our lives today. God, I pray that you would help us know you better through it this morning, that you would speak, that you give us hearts that are open to what you want to say to us this morning through your spirit. 
We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat? Well, the year is 1857, and a Mormon preacher named Brigham Young is rising in popularity and power within the Mormon church, but things begin to shift in his theology and his preaching. Young was preaching the Mormon theology, which is called blood atonement. This theology was first developed by Joseph Smith. And blood atonement basically declares that there are some sins that are so serious that they put the sinner beyond the reach of the atoning blood of Christ. Therefore, the sinner's only hope is to have their own blood shed to save them. Brigham Young uh, preached that this was actually an act of love and mercy to kill another sinner so that their blood may atone for those sins. Needless to say, the Mormon church in the mid-19th century in Utah was a very violent community. The Mormon church has since abandoned this theology, and along with several other theological positions from its earlier days. Well, today we're not studying Mormon theology, so yes, you're still in the right place. <laughs> but we will be studying the atoning work of Christ on the cross. What was it? that Jesus did on the cross. And I want to draw your attention today to three different points that we're going to be looking at, uh, which are really the the pitfalls that, that Paul points out to the Galatians here. We read how Paul confronts the Galatians on contradicting the power of the cross, and second, contradicting the work of the Spirit, and third, contradicting the gospel. So as we jump in today, we're going to look first at contradicting the power of the cross. Right from verse 1, we start to see it. Um, Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul returns to what he began the whole letter of the Galatians with, an astonishment that they are wandering from the true gospel that Paul had preached to them. His alarm at the Galatians is because Paul is wondering where they went wrong. Who has bewitched them with new false teaching? And then he makes a statement about the gospel that was preached to them. He says it portrayed Christ crucified. It might seem a little curious that he puts it this way. It's, it was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So a couple clarification things about that, about that sentence. So publicly, in this, in this context, the Greek word for publicly doesn't necessarily mean like what we think of public versus private. It's more like Christ was previously set forth um, with evidence in this way. Um, and then the word portrayed, the Greek word means vividly or powerfully, um, and it speaks to Um, not only how you hear the gospel, but how it impacts your life. Not just like an intellectual knowledge, but a heart-rendering message and life-changing outcome. So Paul is saying that before your very eyes, they had seen the evidence and understood the life-changing power of the cross. And then we look at the Christ-crucified portion of that verse. I think one key to understanding why Paul puts it that way 
is to look back to uh, the end of chapter 2. Paul has been communicating that Christ's death is the only way for us to attain right standing before God. That's what our whole, whole emphasis last week was on, justification before, Christ, uh, before God comes through Christ's atoning work on the cross. Paul says that after accepting the gospel by faith, if we turn back instead to the law, then Christ died for nothing. We see this in Galatians 2.21. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It would nullify or cancel out God's grace for us to set aside the free offering of grace from Christ and to try to add it, add to it ourselves. The whole point of Christ dying is to show that there is no righteousness attainable through the law. So Paul is saying we wouldn't have needed Christ's death if, we've been made to, if we could have been made righteous through the law. If Christ was not crucified, there was no atonement for sin. And therefore, Paul had preached the gospel which clearly showed Christ was crucified. And I was thinking back to um, last year, I think it was last year, when we were studying the book of Hebrews, and we saw such an amazing theology of atonement. Like throughout the old covenant, God uses the atoning uh, blood of, of animal sacrifice, which doesn't actually have the power to forgive sin. But then it speaks of Jesus, who is the high priest that is the only sufficient sacrifice to forgive sins. Because he was pure and without sin. He was the lamb of God that the law and the prophets foretold. Hear these words from Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. It says, For it was indeed fitting that, he, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. This is Christ that Paul is reminding the Galatians that he preached to them and that they received Christ crucified who is sufficient to cancel their sin. This is the gospel they received, and Paul is basically saying, if there is any other way for you to be made righteous, Christ would have died for nothing. But Christ was crucified because it's the only way for us to receive justification before God. In verse 2, Paul begins to contrast the faith in the gospel versus trying to follow commands of the law. And uh, I love how John Piper puts this uh, summary of the situation. He says, It was incredible to Paul that anyone who had seen Christ crucified in the gospel could still get caught up in legalism. The death of Christ for our sin shows how hopelessly lost we are and how we can't make any contribution to our salvation. The stumbling block of the cross, the thing that makes it so offensive, is that it means our means in ourselves we are helpless and can't do anything to enhance our justification or sanctification. The cross is a stumbling block to our pride. It's offensive to our self-reliance and our natural desire to try to be good enough. So Paul is asking the Galatians, what happened? 
You saw Christ clearly portrayed as crucified, and you accepted it. Why are you turning away from that and rejecting it now? And then in verse 2 and 3, Paul asks the, the next several questions. He says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Which brings us to our second point that Paul is addressing. Contradicting the work of the Spirit. Paul knows the, the Galatians aren't questioning the validity of their original um, conversion. The gospel was clearly portrayed to them. They received the Holy Spirit and saw the Spirit of Jesus work miracles among them. Paul's making it clear they have every reason to trust their original decision to follow Christ. He's just reminding them what they have seemed to have forgotten and asking them how, having begun this way and with the confirmation of the Spirit, why are they moving on now? What Paul's really getting at is how they received Christ in the Spirit. Was it from following commands of the law or by faith? It was by faith. And having received the Spirit by faith, are they now setting the Spirit aside for works of the flesh? So another real quick Greek lesson here for that word flesh. Sometimes in Scripture we read flesh and it just means um, like human life. We'll, we'll hear kind of like the bodily existence of our uh, life in the flesh, that sort of thing. But here it's referring to the power of, um, the power of and, and control of sin and the subject and how it makes us subject to the spiritual forces of evil in our fallen world. The more specifically in this context, I would say it's probably even referring back to what, what Paul's getting at with the flesh um, being the temptation to revert back to good works, trying to find salvation, trying to find right standing before God by following rules. And that's coming from a place of pride. And it really comes back to the, the main point in the whole book of Galatians so far, the true gospel requires faith alone. The temptation that we have to add to the works of the law are a distortion of that gospel, which make it no gospel at all. This is the same distorted theology that Brigham Young in the, we saw in the, in the Mormon story there. There are sins too great for God that we need to add to something ourselves. We can add to Christ's work on the cross if we do good works shed our blood. But if we take a look at our own lives, it's really the same for us. You know, last week, Obed um, read that list of laws that we're tempted to follow in, in being good moral Christians. Church attendance, moralism, earned salvation, serving, family tradition, gaining knowledge, social justice, avoiding the big sins, and comparing ourselves to others. I want to ask you, which ones were particularly convicting for you? Why do we turn from grace to legalism and law-keeping? I would argue that it's actually the path of least resistance for us. 
It's like the low-hanging fruit in our lives. We can just do something and make us feel good about ourselves, make us feel like, oh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm doing good as a Christian. It feeds our self-righteousness, and it's easier than just trusting Christ. But it's really no righteousness at all. It's based on sinful pride that we do those things. It's easier to sprinkle in a little righteous, righteous living and pat ourselves on the back rather than cultivating a relationship that's based on trusting by faith in Christ. It's easier to let our pride comfort us rather than letting humility humble us. Don't get me wrong, it's understandable. It's easier to trust ourselves and our work rather than God. We need to realize what we're actually talking about here, us standing before a holy God. A God who holds all the power in the universe in his hands, who merely spoke a word and the galaxy was formed. He is completely pure and holy, uncontaminated with sin, completely other and set apart from everything we know on earth. This is the God who Isaiah tells us about in chapter 6. Would you listen to this amazing vision that Isaiah gives us, standing before the throne of God? He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the God that we're talking about. And the reason that Paul is so adamant here with the Galatians about what the gospel is, is because it's futile to look for anything to make us right with God other than Christ. Paul knows that Christ's blood is the only sufficient thing that we can rely on to give us salvation. Christ's all-sufficient death should kill our self-sufficient pride. Pride that we might be able to add something to Christ's work of salvation. I was... I was thinking of an analogy to try to give this kind of life here, and I thought it's kind of like taking a little eyedropper, filling it with a couple drops of water, and then going down to the beach and saying, I want to drop these drops in the water and like make the sea level rise a little bit. Our works of righteousness are tainted by pride and sin. They are so utterly insignificant and small compared to the debt that we owe. Another point here that Paul is making is starting well, starting by the Spirit, he says, and then over time losing sight of how you started and adding to your own efforts through righteous living. It's not just about having faith at the beginning and then finishing on our own. It's about keeping that reliance on faith every day. Maybe you've heard this, this phrase before. We've, we've said it here before, I think. 
Preach the gospel to yourself every day. And I think this is exactly what Paul is getting at here. It's not just about a single decision to follow Jesus, but it's reminding yourself over and over that you can't rely on any good work that you can do. Only reliance on Christ and his atoning sacrifice for you. That it's a free gift. So I grew up um, playing golf. I don't really play much golf anymore. It's too, too rich for my blood now. Um, but I grew up, uh, I worked at a golf course in high school, and I played golf like every day. I played competitively with my school, tournaments. And I remember, you know, it's easy to, to go to the driving range and practice with your friends and be like, yeah, I can crush this ball so much further than you. And practice, practice the driver hitting long shots off the, off the driving range. And it carried over to the course. You're playing with your friends, and it's like, who can drive it the furthest, you know, off the tee? Maybe that's, maybe that's a guy thing. I don't know. <laughs> Trying to, like, outdo one another. And um, I heard this phrase at some point in my golf career, and it says, it's not about how you drive. It's about how you arrive. The point of the, of the game of golf is not to outdrive your friends by 20 yards off the tee, it's actually just getting the ball into the hole in fewer shots. Your short game needs to be solid. Chipping and putting can cost you a ton of strokes, and then that 20 yards off the tee means absolutely nothing. It's not about how you drive the ball, it's how you arrive. It's the same for our Christian life. It's not just about how you start but it's about a daily life of faith, humbled by your sin and knowing that you have nothing but Jesus to save you. You can't start adding in your own self-righteous living and supplement things later on. You need that same humbled posture that you started with every single day. Um, one pastor, Dick Kaufman, put it this way. He says, often we think of um, we think Christians are saved by the gospel and grow by applying biblical principles to our lives. But the reality is that we are saved by the gospel and we grow by applying the gospel to every area of our lives. Now, it's, it's not a bad thing to apply biblical principles to areas of your life, but it's a better thing to apply the gospel to every area of, of your life. And what does that look like? Tim, I think Tim Keller kind of explains how we do that. He says we, we need to recognize how we substitute something else as our Savior instead of Jesus. And we do the work of constantly confessing these things and returning to the free grace of Christ. But in order to do this, we need the help of the Spirit. Like the Galatians, when we put our faith in Jesus, we receive the Spirit. This isn't some special incident that, that Paul is referencing here with the Galatians. It's the same for every one of us. If you put your faith and your hope in Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is confirmation and a guarantee of God's saving love and righteous, righteousness that's given to you. I love how in verse 5, if you look at verse 5, Paul switches like the tenses of how he's speaking. Not just something that's happened in the past, but this is something that is happening in the present. He, um, 
I'll, I'll, I'll read verse 5 here. He says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Everyone who has put their faith and their hope in Christ has received the Spirit. Again, John Piper summarizes what's going on here. He says, Paul assumes in this verse that all Christians have received the Spirit. It's not something that happens later on. Romans 8 verse 9 makes this crystal clear. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is why it is impossible to think of Christianity merely in terms of, change, of a change of beliefs and a change of status before God. Becoming a Christian always involves the coming of Christ's Spirit to dwell and work in the believer. So you, Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus, what is the evidence of the Spirit working in your life? Where are you seeing the Spirit move in your life? Paul recalls with the Galatians how they've seen the Spirit. Miracles, healing, the same things that Jesus did. Are we trusting in faith and the power of the Spirit to work miracles in our midst? Are we praying for healing with the faith that we actually might see it happen? It's the Spirit that also supplies the gift of faith. The Spirit that cries out in us, Abba, Father, confirms our standings as sons and daughters of God. And it's the Spirit that allows you to return in faith to Christ to humbly confess and turn away from sin. Are you seeing the fruit of the Spirit? We'll get into later on in Galatians, Paul dives into the fruit of the Spirit um, in chapter 5. Paul lists these out. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are you seeing these things rise up in your life? Are you seeing an impulse toward love of God and others. Paul is basically saying, did you see the spirit work by faith or by works of the law? And the answer is, it was by faith. The spirit works when we stop working. And the tie-in for us today is that we need to open ourselves up to that spirit working. We need to lay down our striving and let the spirit work. Ask God to give you faith to call on the Spirit in those moments when you're tempted to act on your flesh, both in sin and in striving to be righteous through legalism. Trust in Christ to work in and through you by the Spirit. Pray expectantly and with faith for the things that we talked about, healing, miracles, the fruits of the Spirit, and ask the Spirit to help you preach the gospel to yourself every day. All right, so third point, contradicting the gospel. Over and over, Paul draws out this theme in this section that it's by faith, not by works of the law, that the Galatians have received Christ they, and that they saw the Spirit move. And then finally in verse 6, Paul basically says, it's the same for Abraham. 
Uh, verse 6 and 7 says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. might seem a little weird that all of a sudden Paul makes the shift to addressing Abraham. But if you remember back, the whole issue that Paul is confronting here with the Galatians is that the Judaizers are arguing that you may be calling yourself a Christian here, but you're not actually a real Christian until you also follow, follow the Jewish law. Like you're also living as a Jew, but you're, you, then you're a true Christian. Paul's calling on Abraham as a witness to his case that he was a man who lived by faith, who was obedient to God, and, who, and God proclaimed him righteous simply on the basis of his faith. Paul is telling these Gentile Christians that's all they need, faith. An interesting note here is that Abraham received that promise from God 430 years before the law was even given. So faith is all he had. He didn't have the works of the law. Paul's saying two things. First, that Abraham had right standing with God based solely on faith. And that he's making the argument that the blessings and promises of God to Abraham were not only for the Jews because of their lineage, because of their bloodline. They're for everyone who believes with faith. Paul destroys the idea that just because you were born a Jew, that you were therefore somehow an automatic child of God, child of Abraham. We see another awesome concept here in verse 8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. It's so cool that Paul points in a prophetic way and says, the good news of the gospel, the good news of redemption of the Gentiles was preached to Abraham hundreds of years prior to to even the, the law being given. Hundreds of years before Christ. But that when God says, in you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed, this is actually a prophetic foretelling of the eternal plan to justify all people, not just the Jews to whom he had given the law, but to all people who would come in faith. And we see the same concept in Genesis 17, verse 4. God speaks to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Jesus backs this up um, in John chapter 8, verse 39. He's addressing the Jewish leaders. If you were sons of Abraham, you would do what Abraham does. So Jesus, even Jesus is saying, the Jews could be excluded from actually being sons of Abraham. Paul says, it's not your birth or your bloodline that make you children of God. It's simply faith. So Paul is saying, be like Abraham, have faith like Abraham. So you're asking, well, what does Abraham's faith look like? Abraham believed the promises of God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith is all we need. Tim Keller points out that this is not just belief in God, but it's in belief in the promises of God. Of course, Abraham believes in God, but 
It's not the same thing to believe in God. Even the demons believe in God. Instead, believing the promises of God has made the promises that God has made about how he would save. Saving faith in God is not the same thing as a generic faith, a generic belief in God, or even doctrines of God or teachings in the Bible. Abraham had faith in God not based on performance, but in God's provision. Abraham's belief in God promise uh, in God's promise came to him when he was childless. He didn't have an heir at the time that this promise was given. It was obviously beyond his ability to make this happen on its own. He couldn't be a blessing to the nations or the father of a multitude of nations within his own ability. He didn't have any offspring. So we are to imitate him by living by faith and not by works and hold to the promise that we are indeed God's children through the work of Christ. So to wrap up, here are the three things that Paul is telling the Galatians and encouragements for us today to stay faithful to God's call. Paul is saying, hold to Christ crucified. Trust that Christ is the only sufficient atonement by which we can be justified and saved. He's saying, stay open to the work of the Spirit. And for us, let the Spirit work when we stop striving. Ask the Spirit to lead you. Hold to the status of uh, being children of Abraham. Following Abraham's example of simple faith in God's promises and remembering that we are God's plan of salvation. Let's pray together. And we're going to continue in worship a little bit later. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. That it's not about our effort, but it's about what you have already done. God, we thank you for your spirit that led Paul to write this letter for us, that we might learn from it. And God, we thank you for your spirit that is at, at work in everyone who calls you Lord. And we pray that you would open us up to what you want to do through your spirit in us and through us. God, we thank you that it's no longer us who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. In the life that we live now in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, would you find us faithful, holding to faith. In your name we pray. Amen.